the masters almost surely have a plan This clearly may be something near beyond the realm of man And until you thoroughly tested every last close trusted view I find the more you think you know, the less you really do That's true, Dr. Sayers Where would we be without THC? How's it going, Higher Side Chatters? We know there are many tools in the magical toolbox that are carefully kept to the fringes and mocked in mainstream culture, though there is a long history of use by powerful people and results too convincing to be ignored. One of these arcane tools, of course, is astrology. Anyone who's analyzed a proper birth chart knows what I'm talking about, and if you haven't, you really owe it to yourself. Today, we're going deep into this occult art again with returning guest and fellow SoCal lover Austin Kopic. He's a highly respected astrologer, author, and teacher, and I figured with events being so highly charged and unpredictable lately, it would be great to get an astrological assessment of 2017 to give THC listeners some insight into how best to navigate the rough waters of our troubled times. Austin, my man, welcome back to the higher side. Hey, Greg. Thanks for having me. Hell yeah, man. Psyched to have you back. Last time was a lot of fun. We talked about the three hermetic arts, communicating with entities, how the gears of astrology work, the astrological conditions of things like 9-11. It was a good time for sure. And there were a couple questions left on the table, though, that I hoped we could kick this off with before we get into the 2017 assessment. Yeah, let's begin with the past. Awesome. Yep. Always a strong play. Well, one of those areas is astrology and how it relates to financial cycles. Obviously, there's a lot of people wishing they could crack the code in this area, but financial markets, like everything else, do seem like they have some cycles and patterns. What's the best way to think about astrology in this context as you see it? Oh, well, so that's not an area that I've specialized in. Mm -hmm. One thing about astrology is that you can bring it to bear on a wide variety of subjects, but it takes a lot of study. Yeah. <laughs> it, you know, if you, you use the, the analogy of cracking a code, you know, if you look at code breakers, they have to put in a lot of mental effort. <laughs> and so, you know, even where there are secrets to be found or patterns, it's not like you just Google it and you're like, okay, that's it. Mm-hmm. That said, yeah, there, are, there have been financial astrologers for as long as there have been markets. And there are a number of them who have excellent track records. There's a guy, Ray Merriman, who called the 2000, late 2007 to early 2009 super downturn years in advance. I remember reading this newsletter. It was like, yeah, so you want to hold on to your property until maybe mid-2006 and then sell it because I think that's going to be the height of the market. <laughs> Just like beautiful call if I had, had, um, <laughs> if I had owned property at that time. <laughs> but that said, there are there are astrologers who focus on different levels of the market. They're like that was a that's a macro trend, mm-hmm. right? Like, what is the market as a whole going to be doing over ten years or five years? But then there are also astrologers who use it for day trading, which I thought was really interesting. I know a guy who looks primarily at daily shifts. So, you know, a lot of the, the planets are all moving, but they don't change that much in a day, mm-hmm. right? The only body 
that's you know kind of our visible system that changes really fast as the moon. And so he basically watches the moon and watches it make configurations through a trading day and then sets expectations for day trading based on that. And he's been very successful. He probably does some other things too. I don't want to oversimplify his method. Mm -hmm. That's Jonathan Pearl. So right on. Yeah, but there's, you know, it's there. It's there. And, you know, what I've noticed is when I'm looking at, I don't look first at money. You know, I look at the trend. I look at, you know, where the planets are, (laughs) what the cycles are, and then try to unpack the symbols from there. And maybe if I had, if my primary education had been in economics, I would see those implications first. But that's not, you know, I didn't get a degree in economics. I know some things, but so that's not the first thing that comes to me. But I have, there are a few things where I'm like, oh, I wonder if this will mean this money wise. And a lot of times that is what it means, but not my area. But yeah, it's there. If you look for it, it's absolutely out there. There are people who've been beating the market for 30 years. (laughs) Well, on a base level, let me ask you, are there certain planets or configurations that listeners could look for that tend to reflect well in the markets? <sighs> like what's our what's our money planet? Well, so that's going to be different. I mean, it's going to be different for different countries and people. Mm. So if you look at the the US chart, the US has this so there's a little bit of controversy about which chart to use for the US most folks use roughly five o'clock on July 4th, the signing of the Declaration of Independence as the, you know, as far as the moment when this entity really comes into being and separates from other entities. Mm-hmm. It's reasonable. And that chart's really responsive. Anyway, the U.S. has this uh, Venus-Jupiter conjunction in early tropical cancer. And what's interesting is when those degrees get afflicted, and afflicted is a technical term, basically, when there are configurations that are putting nasty pressure on another area, we pretty much always have a downturn. Hmm. And so, you know, part of, you know, in a sense, if we're looking at money, we're just as interested in things going down as things going up. Anything that takes us off the baseline, right? Yeah. And I would say that that's true for divination of any sort, divination or just prognostication. You know, whether you're Nate Silver or Dion Fortune, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, what what's going to pop things up above the baseline? What's going to go below? And what's going to maybe reset the baseline? And so what's interesting about that, or I guess what's relevant about that is that those degrees are going to be, those are, so the Venus and Jupiter are the two planets which are traditionally referred to as benefics. You know, that's bene as in beneficent, benevolent, et cetera. And although those terms have a moral connotation, Venus and Jupiter are called that more because they tend to bring about situations that people like right and that it's so it's this smaller definition of good like a good day or a good year right on and so the u.s has both of those sort of tied up together in this one area which makes them very strong right there's been a lot of abundance if we look at the history of the united states Mm -hmm. but there's also it also sort of it puts both of those eggs 
in one basket. And so when something comes along to kind of smash on that, both eggs are <laughs> both eggs are right there. Yeah. And, and so we talked a little bit last time about how the decade ends. Not this year. I guess we talked a little bit about this year. But we talked about the Saturn-Pluto conjunction at the end of this decade, ending, beginning like a 40-year power cycle. Right. And so Saturn will basically come along and start pressuring those degrees in 2018 and 19, right? And as far as, you know, capitalism goes, we're kind of due for another obvious downturn. Mm -hmm. You know, it's been, it's getting to be about 10 years. And if, you know, I, I dare you to find 10 years uh, <laughs> in the 20th <laughs> century where there wasn't like a pretty obvious correction or, you know, uh, or recession. Mm -hmm. So that, that'll probably arrive right on schedule. Not this year, not this year, but. Damn. <laughs> well, I mean, that's great to know. I like I like that kind of insight. Of course, people can dig deeper into those particular configurations and maybe see how they relate on their own charts. But actually, sorry, I, I want to jump in just on one thing. Yeah. So what's interesting about looking at an individual person's chart is that you get one or more planets maybe may end up being a money trigger for someone because of their chart that isn't usually associated with money, mm -hmm. right? So Venus and Jupiter tend to, they, again, they're the, the, the good doers. <laughs> and so they're generally positive. But, you know, you absolutely have people's lives and charts where money for them is about the sun or money is about Mars. And that's the trigger for them. Mm. And one thing that's interesting about financial astrology is uh, I was listening to an interview with Ray Merriman who had the good call about the, the mess at the end of last decade. And he was talking about his best calls and his best calls about, you know, situations that weren't under his control lined up really cleanly with what were his best money transits, like mm. the things, you know, the the cycles in his chart that said, okay, you know, this is going to be good for money for you, that translated into him being able to make these really accurate calls and benefit. Astrology is literally wheels within wheels. Yeah. And we're literally looking at wheels. <laughs> <laughs> right. And there's so many combinations. It's definitely a, a deep study. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I, I guess doesn't get discussed enough when people are talking about, you know, learning astrology, like there are basics you can learn, but it's how many, you know, in a sense, how many wheels can you hold in your head at the same time and maintain coherent, clear thought? Yeah. And what is your capacity to filter and process all of that information? You know, when I was first getting into astrology, one of the things that I was excited about was I was like, this is so hard. Like, yeah. this is this has got to make me smarter. <laughs> you know, if I consistently attempt to do this, because this is engaging left brain, it's engaging right brain. And, you know, it requires a deep and complex harmonies. And so I don't know, I, you know, there's just always the matter. And this is the thing with divination. I was talking with our, our friend and your, uh, your guest, Gordon White, about this a couple weeks ago, mm -hmm. how, you know, sometimes the should we put this the the cards come up right or the you know the indicators were there you know in the planetary system but you weren't capable of seeing it at the time you know there's this necessary interface 
you know, there's always a human interface with systems of divination. And, you know, it's not a computer that just tells you exactly this, that, and the other. Sometimes it seems like that. There are some things that are really easy to call, but there's this sort of, you know, there's this human linkage between, you know, heaven and earth or between the visible and the invisible. Yeah. Well said. That makes sense. And so another thing I did want to ask you about that we didn't get to last time was Ophiuchus, this apparent 13th sign that NASA made some statements about. (sighs) From what I read, it's always kind of been there. And maybe this is a tactic to make astrology seem random and useless. It absolutely is. (laughs) Fair enough. What are your thoughts on this? You won't hear me calling disinformation on many things. So this is bullshit. (laughs) It's not that that's not a constellation, right? It's totally a constellation. So let's just analyze this claim. So 2,000 years ago, in the Eastern Mediterranean is where we have the first textual evidence that people are doing astrology more or less like I do it, using a lot of the same tools that people use now, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So these are people who, with absolutely no pollution in their skies, look up and study the movements of the planets, you know, and the stars. And they don't notice an entire constellation. That's the idea, right? That's the claim. Mm -hmm. That's absurd. (laughs) We have star maps. Like, Ophiuchus isn't even a modern name. So the idea that this was discovered, that this took like super powerful telescopes or, you know, Mm -hmm. science has liberated us from the, you know, the swamps of ignorance. So that's, that's a silly claim. (laughs) And it goes back to, I think part of the reason that it's gotten hold at all is that people don't really know how the Zodiac is constructed or what we do with it because it's astronomy and it's boring. (laughs) So basically the, the Zodiac that people use The names are drawn from constellations, but it's actually a fixed geometrical division of the areas of the sky that doesn't process or move over time. Part of the problem is that the stars relative to us appear to move over time. The sphere of the fixed stars is not entirely fixed. It has this larger, roughly like 25, 26,000 year cycle, right? And Basically, what that means is if you have a star calendar, over a couple hundred years, your star calendar stops being accurate. It stops telling you what time of year it is, right? And the Egyptians, uh, the ancient Egyptians, no doubt experienced this. You see that they go through periods of calendar correction because they're like, oh, we've been doing 500 years. It's supposed to be, you know, uh, spring was supposed to start a, a week and a half ago, but now it's just starting. You get this, you know, this this slippage, right? Mm-hmm. And so. At some point, you get this insight that you can divide the sky in a way that doesn't change over time, and that's called the tropical zodiac, right? And so we have, in order to account for this, and we get this Aristarchus in the 3rd century BCE. is a Greek guy who we have record of, it, of writing about this. People probably figured this out earlier, but it's at least that old, right? And so... Most of the time we're talking about signs, we're talking about those divisions of the sky that don't change. And because they're named for constellations, it's really confusing, right? Mm -hmm. If you don't know about all of this. Now, 
we still look at stars. Stars are still really important. Like, so if you have, you know, Mars, you know, right next to this brilliant star, let's say Antares, Mars spent a lot of time next to red Antares last year, that's still accounted for, but the stars aren't used to define the signs because the stars, from our point of view, move over time and we want a fixed frame of reference. Okay. So, you know, part of it is disinformation and then part of it is it's complicated and I dare say potentially boring to find the truth. <laughs> <laughs> right on. Well, I'm glad we definitely got to address that because it's come up before. Whenever I've brought up astrology, it seems to be something people talk about. Yeah, and it's the, the you get the same issue with the signs changing over time. That was baked in from the beginning. That's why we're using this fixed frame of reference instead of the stars because the stars do slide over time. So when NASA says, oh, you know, the signs have changed, things have moved – Absolutely. And that's exactly why we use the tools that we have. And that's why they started using it thousands of years ago. <laughs> so we wouldn't have that issue. But, you know, what's funny is that comes up about every two years, at least out of the last 10, as if it were a totally new discovery. <laughs> yep, yep, I'm sure. Well, Good summary there. And uh, to get into the actual timeline, of course, we did talk about the astrological conditions of the final few months of 2016. Last time we talked, I think we both kind of expected Clinton to take the election and we talked about that cycle. I did. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll mea culpa on that. <laughs> you know, I, I didn't dig into the candidates charts super hard. I have some colleagues who have great track records and have spent a lot more time in that branch than I, I had. And everybody was just like, yeah, Clinton's going to take it. And I was like, okay, hmm. I'm really busy. I don't want to spend 40 hours, <laughs> <laughs> you know, redoing the work you did, but not the case. Yeah. Well, I think it was a lot of it had to do with, we talked about that cycle ending in 2020. So we thought that Hillary would be a natural choice to kind of close out that cycle. This whole thing about the globalist movement, you know, this, whole collectivist kind of thing. And now we're rearing back the other way. But I, I think that's kind of what brought us to that idea. Yeah. Well, and you know, what's interesting is, so again, I'm going to reference a conversation Gordon and I had a while ago. So, you know, the, the high watermark for this wave of globalization, I think has obviously happened and, and that's receding, right? You see resistance to that all over the world mm -hmm. right now for all sorts of reasons. I think reasons, great reasons and terrible reasons. And what I kind of the scenario that I thought was we were going to get really sick of it under Clinton and that it was going to be like death by decay. Ah. Right. But instead it got immolated. Right. I would see it, the Trump victory and the way this is working is as a, a much more rapid decomposition, right? Like the, you know, setting the corpse on fire rather than letting it gently rot. Mm -hmm. And that's a metaphor from alchemy. They call that there's the, the dry way and the wet way. And both of them are ways of separating the spirit or essence of matter from the body of matter. Literally, it's the difference between, you know, throwing something in the oven versus letting you know, letting the bugs pick it clean, mm -hmm. right? Letting it, letting it rot and decompose. And so instead of the wet way, we're going the dry way. <laughs> History coming in dry, 
or <laughs> a way more aggressive reaction or changing of the tide. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's the same transition, right? But the the route to the end of the decade is different than I thought it was going to be. Right on. So um, looking back at 2016 analysis, are there other areas that surprised you perhaps, or maybe areas where you can actually see the reflection of the roadmap in the sky being highly accurate or having a great influence? Oh, yeah. I'm really happy with everything I said about 2016, basically except the election. Yeah. I'm totally like I, well, we weren't talking at the beginning of 2016, but right away I was like, okay, there's this Mars-Saturn thing. It's a giant pain in the ass. Lots of, you know, contentiousness, you know, cultural contentiousness like we haven't seen. Some very serious military action, you know, and the the height. I know, and I I pin that to the Mars retrograde cycle, and I'm, I'm I don't want to go back into all of the specifics of it, but basically, we had a lot of military action in the Middle East that wasn't reported on because everybody was interested in what Donald or Hillary said. <laughs> you know, there's a multi-front land war happening with ISIS. Yeah, kind of important. So yeah, I remember they were launching this military operation to retake Fallujah at the end of spring. And everybody's like, but Hillary said this or but Donald said this. And I'm just like, that, this is a fucking huge thing. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I, yeah, I'm totally happy with what I said uh, about 2016, except for the election. <laughs> I really thought it was going to go the other way. One element that uh, I did think was interesting, you can definitely tell there's something in the air around the idea of fake news or not being able to really identify truth as easily. And the biggest phenomenon of 2016 that was just had nothing to do with the election or politics was Pokemon Go. So you got people looking for fake creatures out in the world, and it, it definitely caught on more than anything. And then you couple that kind of theme with the fake news narrative, and you can definitely get a sense that something was going on there. Oh, yeah. Well, and I and plenty of other astrologers were talking about that in 2015 going into 2016. That's a really that was an easy call. Reality getting melty. That was the series of Saturn Neptune squares. We expected the definition of the real culturally to get very difficult to ascertain. It's like confusion and depression and delusion. Um, <laughs> it's It was just the sort of anatomy of that. Saturn is basically the planet that when we connect to that or see its influence or whatever, it signifies reality like most people's dads mean when they say reality, <laughs> right? Like, you know, like get a job. This is the economic situation. You got to get up on time and go to work, right? It's It's time and space as we experience it and it can agree on, right? Like mm -hmm. solid knock, knock. Neptune is the tripped out hippie planet. Hmm. And so Neptune is, if you think of, if you imagine the solar system for a second and you imagine all of the, the planets proper, right? Neptune is the furthest out and its orbit encloses the rest of the system, right? You have stuff beyond Neptune, but it's different stuff, right? Yeah. You've got Pluto, but Neptune is like 300 times the size of Pluto, right? <laughs> it's a different kind of body. And so Neptune is this like very big, very fluid, 
you know, dreamy perspective. It's really, you know, when people get a Neptune transit or if people are born with like a Sun-Neptune conjunction, they have really big perspectives, but they have a hard time bringing it down. Neptune is literally, it's the edge of our system's reality, right? Mm -hmm. It gets dark and cold and weird if you (laughs) you go out further than that. And so when you have, historically, when you have Saturn and Neptune in the configuration that they were last year, which is a square, and a square means that they're exactly 90 degrees away from our point of view, right, in reference to us. And so squares basically give you friction between those two planets, like between what their, you know, their priorities, right? It's the one of the worst, it's one of the least harmonious relationships that those spheres can have. And so when you have like tripped out, I'm not sure what's real planet and, you know, dad reality planet in contention, it ends up sort of messing up what people expect and what reality is going to offer. And so you get challenges to, you know, what everybody can agree on. What is the news? What are the facts? You know, is virtual reality reality? Hmm. Right. And so that's a cycle you can, you can just follow and go back through. And that one, what's interesting, and this is a little kind of jumping back to how you always have to have a human doing prognostication, you know, whether it's, tarot or statistics or whatever or astrology i was aware of that and i think did an excellent job of articulating it repeatedly throughout the year you can listen to me on other podcasts or read any of my voluminous writings that doesn't mean that i was totally immune right Mm -hmm. (laughs) it just it doesn't mean just because you're aware of something doesn't make you invulnerable to it right and that's one of the you know it you're certainly better positioned than if you didn't know about it, Hmm. right? I don't know what confusions I avoided because I avoided them. But at the same time, you know, when you're looking at history, you're still part of history. Right. That makes perfect sense. Well, and actually, just sorry, one thing. I would say that we're in the hangover period (laughs) from that now. (laughs) That was going to be my question is because we talked about, you know, the Saturn and Neptune cycle and how it affects the fake news thing. And then there's also the Saturn-Pluto conjunction and the thickening of borders. And I was curious when those two things might be coming to an end because I find them both pretty annoying. Okay, so... So our our perfect configuration or the the perfect version is Saturn and Neptune exactly 90 degrees away from each other, right? That happened three times in 2016. It will not happen again in 2017. However, there is sort of like a margin of error where it's close enough to be active, right? Where the planets are, let's say they're not 90, but it's like 87 degrees, right? And so you still get some of that action, but it's not quite right. And so when we're coming into a period where it's not happened yet, but it's almost there, we call that applying, right? That this is coming into being. And then after something has happened, like the Saturn on Neptune square, after it's happened, And it's not going to, you know, we're done with it, but at the same time, it's only like 30 feet behind us in the rear view mirror. We say that those two are separating, but it's still active. And so, you know, for a lot of 
2017, we're in the separating from that, where it's the last thing that we saw. So it's still on our minds, but it, it is in the rearview mirror, right? Good. And so, I mean, you know, after something happens, you try to process it, right? And that's what you look at the media or what people are saying online. People are trying to process these very real challenges to reality. And there's this hangover from, you know, oh, I believe this and it was wrong, or those people believe this and it's wrong. You know, it's this sort of disillusionment. So that's fading this year as far as the configuration is concerned. We're processing that rather than getting exactly the same trick happening again. Mm -hmm. The Saturn-Pluto thing, I would say that we're, so that conjunction, and a conjunction is very easy to imagine, the planets are just right next to each other in our sky, right? Mm -hmm. That doesn't even happen proper until the end of the decade, but we're, we're moving towards it. There was a shadow of it, especially last year, but we'll be like that. That's, that's really waiting for us. That'll be, that's something that I think will be more evident in 2018, even than now. As much as I don't like that, just strictly from an astrological point of view, that's going to intensify as we get towards the end of the decade rather than evaporate. Hmm. Right on. Well, so now that we do know Trump is president, have you looked into his chart anymore or gotten insights from other astrologers about his character or what kind of president he might be? Well, so, I mean, I've looked at his chart before. Looking at someone's chart and being able to say some things about their character or their behavior is a lot easier than knowing whether they will win a contest with another person, right? Mm -hmm. So one of the things that's nice is we've had a timed birth certificate chart for Trump from the beginning. One of the issues with the election last year is that a lot of astrologers were making predictions about Trump versus Clinton when they didn't have Clinton's real data. Hmm. We still don't know when she was born. Really? Yeah, there are like three different birth times floating around out there. And some astrologers are like, oh, I think I'm pretty sure it's this one because this works well enough with her history. But we still don't know. And th this might be fun for you and some of your listeners. There's actually a pretty good case to be made that she found out about astrology a long time ago and actually intentionally gave wrong data huh. because she didn't want people, you know, she because she didn't want people to be able to say this or that about her. Right. Yeah. And that, yeah, my uh, my friend Chris Brennan did a whole podcast about that. Oh, I love that kind of stuff. Because he was just on it with the date. Like he, he tracked on every source. He called these reporters <laughs> the story in like 1991. You know, apparently there's another astrologer, you know, 20 years ago who, or 25 years ago who like talked to someone who knew her, uh, what is it? Uh, not acupuncturist, the, uh, the chiropractor. And apparently the chiropractor was into astrology and was like, Oh, Hey, and looked at her chart and was like, oh, hey, you're a Leo rising just like me. And, you know, hmm. there's a rabbit hole there. But that was one of the issues with, I think, a lot of the predictions last year is that people, a number of astrologers didn't actually have the data. You know, they knew the day, but there's a big when you're trying to figure out something in a contest, right, you need time of day and it was like 8 p.m 8 a.m 1 30 in the morning and all of those gave very different charts right mm -hmm. 
sorry, that was a that was a tangent, but I don't know. I no, think it's a cool. fun tangent. But yeah, that was one of the problems. And that was looking back, I should have been more critical of some of my colleagues. Been like, so you're saying this and assuming that it's the eight a.m. or eight p.m. birth time, but we don't know. Hmm. <laughs> right. Yeah. Because astrology is hard enough when you have the data, but with Trump, with, <laughs> with we'll call him chart. <laughs> With Trump, we we do have uh, a birth certificate, and every astrologer I've ever seen look at it is like, oh yeah, oh yeah. So here are the two things that make everybody go, oh yeah. <laughs> First, he has Mars and Leo on the ascendant. So the ascendant is, you know, ascending is rising, right? So that's your rising sign. Literally, Mars had just breached the horizon in the east where everything rises most obviously the sun and so the ascendant point in a chart is how that person projects themselves into the world right mm -hmm. so if you have like jupiter there you can expect like a relatively like jolly philosophical fellow if you have saturn there they're going to be kind of cranky and uh, cranky and more reserved so mars i think everybody has some associations with the planet mars mars is the warrior the fighter the it's a con, it, there's contentiousness right is going getting right in your face mars rising you know with mars on the rising like that you absolutely expect someone who you know you can look at a book like ptolemy from 1700 years ago, or 1800 years ago or vedius valens and look up mars on the rising they'll be like oh yes this person will be brash and rude and uncouth and they will attack <laughs> their enemies like this is not one of the subtleties of the art. <laughs> and it's in the sign of Leo. So a planet will always be in a sign. And a sign sort of puts clothes on the significations of the planet, right? The planets are all these kind of sort of raw areas, right? They, they have a character, but they're not, it's not super filled in. So you need the sign that the planet's in to kind of help fill out the image, right? Mm -hmm. And so in... Mars and Leo is about representation. It's about self. It's about, you know, we have Mars using the image of self as a tool or a weapon. And so, you know, you this is the guy who has his name all over everything. And we can say, no matter what you think about him, extremely brand conscious, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so you have, you know, it's just like, oh, God, that that's right there. And if you look at some of the, the physiognomic stuff for a planet on the rising, like somebody who's got Mars in the rising is supposed to be red faced. It's supposed to give them a reddish coloration. They're supposed hmm. to be like red faced and rude and out of breath and contentious and willing to fight. And, you know, it's just right there. Right? so everybody looks at that and they're like, oh, okay. Yeah, we have the right chart. <laughs> and it's literally from a birth certificate. The other thing that I think is really obvious is if you look at the position of the sun in his chart. So he has the sun in Gemini, right? And whenever you have, not everybody does, but sometimes you'll have a planet that's right there in line with the sun. You know, if you could see through the sun's blinding rays, you would see the other planet behind it lined up like that or in front of it. If it's Venus, we call that a conjunction. And so Trump has a Sun-Uranus conjunction, right? And so the Sun has to do with identity and sort of what is a person's center. And Uranus, if we look at the significations for Uranus, it's all about breaking patterns, 
revolting against whatever you're supposed to do, revolting against whoever you're supposed to be. It's the planet of departure from the norm, of pattern breaking, of rebellion. It's contentious like Mars, but it's it's not necessarily about I'm going to fight you. It's about I'm not going to do what you say and mm-hmm. I'm I'm going to do things my way. And these are things that we prize in our culture, right? Of individuality and all that. But, you know, departure from the norm and rebellion is neither good nor bad, right? Right. It does seem accurate though. Yeah. And so when you have somebody like it, it, you know, it's literally, it's the wild card planet. It's the planet of disruption. One thing that's kind of fun, if you look at, so Uranus, the planet is thought to be really, really strong when it's in the section of the sky that we call Aquarius, which is seven years out of every 84. And if we just look at the 20th century, it was there twice. The last time was like, oh God, was it like 96 through 2003? We got the internet. Everybody got the internet. It had been around for a while, but everybody got it. The time before that was the mid-teens where we had World War I, and it was the first industrial war. You know, the machine gun was very disruptive technology, as was artillery and gas and planes, right? And you can go back. You know, those are, I think those are good examples of disruptions that are neither, you know, I I guess you can say uh, World War I is pretty much in the negative. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But, you know, the, the, the consumer internet, like everybody getting the internet in that like 96 to 2003 period. You know, that was a Pandora's box full of gifts, blessings and curses, right? Yeah. And so it, the the key thing that Uranus does is it changes the game. You know, it's not about making a smart or a dumb move within the rule set. It's trying to change the rule set or just being like, you know what? I'm not going to play by those rules, right? Instead of a good or a bad role in Monopoly, it's kicking over the table, right? <laughs> And so, you know, with Trump having that conjunct his son and being sort of an avatar of that, that makes perfect sense. You know, the first couple of weeks of the presidency, there's a lot of like, no, I'm going to try to do things even though the rules say I can't. Right. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think that was very much the nature of the primaries and the election was people like, well, but you're not playing this game smartly according to the rules, whereas he was playing a different game. Yeah. And so, you know, whatever people think about him. I think that we can say that those Uranian characteristics, which are suggested extremely strongly by the natal chart, are very much right there. You know, that's pretty inarguable. And it's not like there's, you know, if you know even just a little smallest bit of astrology, I'm not stretching or torturing the symbols to get there. Sun and Uranus right there. Boom. One thing that's interesting about that is so I, you know, I talked about wheels within wheels, right? So one thing you can do is you can hold up the United States chart next to a leader's chart, and you can look at the relationship between those two. This is basically synastry. And so it's much more common to look at two charts in relationship to each other for romantic compatibility or you know mm-hmm. friendship or relationship. But you can also do this with a larger entity and a person. What is worth noting is if you look at the U.S. chart, the Mars for the U.S., right? We know what Mars means. Mars is, you know, warfare, contention, that kind of attitude. Mars is right on top 
of Trump's Sun-Uranus conjunction. So if we're looking at where does Trump naturally intersect with the American egregor, with the, you know, this larger, you know, the American psyche, right? Yeah, yeah. He plugs right into Mars. That doesn't sound good. Well, I mean, you know, was anger an important part of getting elected for him? Yeah, it seems like it. Right, that Mars is angry. So, yeah, you know, there, there there's that. Well, does that signify we should expect a lot of war in his presidency? You know, that's a good question. I don't necessarily, no, I don't necessarily think so. I would want to look at a bunch of other stuff. So there's this idea, you know, each chart, it tends to unfold in a certain way, right? Where there will be periods that are very contentious and periods that are very peaceful and periods of internal conflict and external conflict, all this kind of stuff, right? And so, and sure, the person who's plugged into the big seat of that larger entity matters. But I would tend to say that the the cycles of the nation itself are more dominant than the single person in charge. Mm-hmm. I actually had this discussion on astrology podcast with my friend Chris Brennan, where he was looking at some Roman era astrological texts. And they're like, oh, the the chart of the emperor becomes the chart of the nation. And that makes sense if you have an emperor with unlimited power. Right. right? You'd be like, okay, so let's throw this chart out, (laughs) you know. (laughs) But regardless of how many of the rules Trump challenges and regardless of whether he gets away with this or gets away with that, it's not going to become an imperial autocracy with, you know, (laughs) we're not going back to Caligula. Mm-hmm. Right. There are some frightening sort of shadows of that. Like I know that there are a lot of people who are worried about, you know, people talk, people use the, you know, coup or takeover or Hitler's rise to power. I understand that there are some frightening parallels. It seems absurd that we would literally get to Roman emperor level. Even the, the nastiest dictators alive right now can't really compare to or <laughs> have a hard time really comparing to what has happened, you know, what happened, you know, 2000 years ago or a thousand years ago. Fair enough. So time's definitely going by pretty quickly. Let's get into that roadmap for 2017. As an overview, broadly speaking, what kind of year does it look like it's going to be? What do you see as being the major themes? Okay. So I guess, first of all, I see it as 2016 part two. Right. I don't know if it's the redemption, the revenge, the, you know, (laughs) depends on your storyline, but the two have a tremendous amount in common. So 2017, again, I'm thinking of it as the sequel to 2016. And the reason why is that it has a lot in common with 2016 astrologically. We have several planets, so several outer planets, which are these marker like Saturn, for example, marks out like two to three year chapters of the world, right? Mm -hmm. And Saturn's going to be in the same sign. And we have some other indicators that are basically in the same place, right? So we have a, there's a lot of the character is similar. It's not, um, okay, let me think how to summarize this. I wrote like an 8,000 word article on this a month and a half ago, (laughs) which people should read. One of the characteristics of 2017, just looking at the astrology, is that you have this super abundance 
of planets in fire signs. Right. So the signs are associated with one of the four classical elements. Think of them as states of matter, solids versus plasmas, et cetera, et cetera. And with 2017, we have a superabundance of fire stuff. And so just this elemental quality helps characterize some of the year, right? Mm Mm-hmm. If we're looking at water versus fire versus air versus earth. And fire is the most volatile and chaotic and highest energy of the elements, right? If we're looking at them in terms of states of matter, it's the high energy state of matter, right? When things are on fire, they're plasma, they're, they're stars, right? We can say high energy, harder to predict. It can be difficult, you know, to predict the movement of air, right? That's like convection patterns. That's That math is beyond me. But fire is, the structure of fire is even more difficult to predict. And we have a bunch of stuff. We have a bunch of configurations that highlight Uranus, which as I said before, has a disruptive quality and indicates moments where the game changes. So we have a lot of things changing very rapidly, it being very difficult to just sort of plan things, plan out your year and expect everything to move according to plan, right? If we're thinking about strategies, you know, different types of strategies for dealing with a year, you know, some years it makes a lot of sense to bunker down to make really structured plans and just execute those, Mm -hmm. right? Whereas at other points, we have to be really adaptable because if we make a plan, it's going to be invalidated, you know, in a month. And so this is very much, again, this is something Gordon and I were talking about and I wrote about a lot in December, is getting flexibility and adaptability right. Because what that means is not, not making plans because things might change. Hmm. There's a quote that I'm going to butcher from a book I was reading at the time where the character who's this, this 90 year old secret agent (laughs) is thinking back to an old sergeant she knew in Burma. And that guy told her that if you expect the unexpected, the expected will walk up behind you and blow your expectations out through the back of your head. (laughs) Expect the expected just don't forget about the rest, mm-hmm. right? Because being open to the unknown shouldn't mean that you, you trash the known, right? Fair. You know, although the, the sort of direction of our republic seems to be in a more uncertain place than it's been for a while, like it or not, you know, our lives are not equally chaotic. Yeah. The configurations this year will definitely have some surprises and shifts for people, big jumps, but it's not the same thing. Right. It's not complete randomness. No, it, it, yeah. And on no level is it complete randomness. Mm-hmm. And just because the larger entity that you're inside of is in a particularly volatile state, it doesn't mean that your life is in exactly that same state, right? Makes sense. Yeah. I see a lot of people conflating the sort of macro and micro or the personal and political right now. And, you know, they both exist and they're both worth considering. But you got to remember that they don't operate under exactly the same rules. So what looking at this year led me into is a lot of thinking about flexible planning, right? There are some military maxims and axioms where it's like you plan for everything 
And then once you get into the battle, you toss that out the window, <laughs> right? But you do that planning first. Yeah. In case things go according to plan, then you're prepared, right? It, you just uh, you just don't freak out when the the territory and the map no longer have a meaningful relationship. Mm-hmm. So fire, fire, fire. And I'm going to spare you all the technical details there. One of the, as far as volatility, we get a lot of it basically February through, like, let's say mid-February, mid-April. There's a particularly intense, potentially for people, like positive, transformative period. Also a period that a lot of, that'll freak a lot of people out Hmm. for both personal and political reasons, because we get a couple things on top of each other. Right. You know, if you look at human beings, most human beings are pretty good at dealing with one thing at a time, even if it's really hard. It's when you get things coming from a couple different angles and you can't deal with this because this demands your attention, but you can't totally focus on this because there's that other thing. Right. And that's, you know, when you look at human life through the lens of astrology and you look at periods of time and where the planets are again like i have a lot of faith in people to deal with one thing at a time even if it's really difficult but when there's a bunch of stuff going on and no there's not you don't have enough bandwidth to really solve that one thing those are the periods that really tend to be more difficult to handle right on so that said the factors that make this next especially you know like again mid-february to mid-march is probably the the most interesting and intense block of time because we get some eclipses and we get a venus retrograde right so some people probably hear mercury retrograde bandied about yeah so mercury goes retrograde three times a year it's worth noting it doesn't signify the apocalypse venus's retrograde happens once every year and a half about a year and a half and those year and a half increments are bundled together to make a very orderly eight-year cycle which repeats itself so this is the venus in aries retrograde and uh, the planet will be retrograde from our point of view from i believe it's march 4th to april 15th but we'll be feeling it by the end of february and so what venus retrogrades do or what kind of experiences they correspond to They dig up what's in people's hearts. It's basically like, it's like taking an emotional laxative. (laughs) A lot of the stuff that's in people comes out and it's very important for relationships and it's in relationships, both on a personal level as well as a collective level. But, you know, in terms of people's personal lives, the Venus retrogrades are a period of cleansing and you know, shitting things out and then saying, oh, I guess I've been carrying that around Hmm. or I've been backed up for a year and a half. Yeah. yeah. And it's interesting in terms of like what you see in the news, Venus retrogrades tend to be good for sex scandals. All right. Yeah. Pizzagate. (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) And so one thing that's interesting is because you have this eight year cycle comprised of five Venus retrogrades. What you'll see is that people, because of the structure of their their charts individually, tend to be sensitive to one or another of these. And if you can just if you do a little history and you can figure out which one which ones of these matter for you, you can get really interesting and consistent precedents. Hmm. And that, that allows you to project forward. 
there's a friend and colleague of mine, Patrick Watson, took a look at this Venus retrograde cycle, this one in Aries, which is again, so this is like late winter, spring 2017, late winter, spring 2009, late winter, spring 2001, 93, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, so he looked at this with Trump and almost everything, almost every important event in his romantic life hooks into this cycle. Wow. Yeah. People should read the article. Look up Patrick Watson, Venus Trump. Yeah. And, and it goes back into the early 80s. And mm. it's like he meets his wife. He divorces his wife. He becomes a bachelor. He goes back to being married. Like it's it's just these big signposts. Huh. You know, if you're looking at the the symbolism or the meaning of, you know, a planet from our perspective reversing its course, a lot of times you have reversals, right, where it's like changing directions. And so you'll see that. And a lot of people will feel that emotionally. They'll feel like changing directions or like, maybe I don't want to do this. And then they'll come back to maybe I do want to do this, but not this way. Or maybe I do love this person. Or there's a lot of literally what's funny is what you see, what you people experience is back and forth about something. And that's what the planet is visibly doing. If you watched it over time, it's back and forth or the same patch of sky. Right on. Right. So we have that. And so that like volatizes the passions. Right. And so we have that brewing while we have two eclipses. And that's not necessarily a crazy thing. There are four eclipses every year with very few exceptions. They're not all equally intense, but they, they're, you almost always get four every year. You get a two-pack at a time. You get uh, one solar and one lunar, and then about six months later, you get one solar and one lunar, right? Mm -hmm. So this year, we get it. We have a penumbral eclipse in Leo on February 10th, and then we have an annular eclipse, in, solar eclipse in Pisces on the 26th of the month. And an annular eclipse is one of those ring of fire ones. They're really cool looking. Hmm. It's not just like some kind of barely visible sort of bullshit shadow. <laughs> yeah. Because sometimes, you know, you hear there's going to be an eclipse and you go to see it and you're like, well, that really wasn't that cool. That was it? Yeah, that was it. I thought that, you know, I thought it was going to be darkness in the day and the birds would come out and start <laughs> singing hymns to the old ones. And, you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but eclipses do a lot of things. There's a lot of eclipse lore. People have been telling stories about eclipses as long as there have been people. It's one of the when, you know, when you get a real one, it's one of the most dramatic celestial events you can see. Right on. What I will say is that what eclipses do do consistently is they get things moving. That which is latent in a person's life often rises to the surface and then makes a change. It's almost like the eclipses sort of, if we have like the sort of visible and invisible or the apparent and the latent, those two are usually kind of off center. They're kind of, they're not quite connecting Right. So it's some stuff stays over here and hidden and some stuff stays over here and it's seen and visible. Eclipses tend to bring those two layers into alignment. And so what you get is stuff comes out of nowhere and also stuff goes back to nowhere. It's almost like the 
mythological angle on it would be like the gateway between the world of the living and the dead is open for business and stuff can jump out of there and stuff can fall into there. And what that means in practice is stuff moves a lot quicker during that lunar cycle. And so, so we have a pair of those. The one on February 10th is, you know, you kind of feel it, but it's not, it's not super dramatic. The one on the 26th, on uh, February 26th, is pretty intense. And it's right around the Venus retrograde station. There's some pretty intense Mars stuff happening. End of February should be pretty interesting. And by interesting, I mean semi-terrifying, if you watch <laughs> the news. And so there's that. And then, you know, we'll work through that and go back to sort of the normal volatility for this year. Because this, this year as a whole is, you know, more volatile than most years, right? Just, you know, if we looked at like a 40-year average, right? A lot of questions. There are a lot of questions throughout the year. When I wrote my, my piece attempting to summarize 2017 back in December, I decided to go with a casino metaphor. Right, yeah. Right, because it's like you got you to gotta wait for those cards to get turned over before you know how strong your hand is. Mm -hmm. And, you know, with, one thing that's fun about poker as a metaphor is it's a game of both skill and chance. Yeah. Right. It's not like everything's random. You might get fucked. You know, that, that's, <laughs> not the, that's not the message. It's just that there, you know, there, there are a lot of, uh, or you think of the, the, the lotteries where they have all the little balls bouncing around. Right. You know, no matter what industry you're in right now, there's a good chance that everybody's watching those balls and they're, you know, it's going to be plan A, B or C, depending on which ones come up. Right. Right. I love the analogy because it's like uh, we're, you were talking earlier about the flexibility required. And I play a lot of Texas Hold'em. You know, you get your two cards and then you see the flop and that could drastically change your situation. And then when you get to the river, I mean, everybody knows the river can turn the whole game upside down. So, yeah, you can plan, but then you also have to be ready for sudden changes. Right, right. And so that's part of the, you know, the territory of this year. And to a certain degree, that, that's interesting for me as an astrologer, because the symbols are literally giving or providing this image or this impression, right? Saying like, okay, wait and see, and then move. It doesn't mean don't come up with any ideas about what you might do if this eventuality came up. But, you know, the strategy is not you know, fixed start to finish. It's a, the strategy of working with a volatile situation, which is interesting because that's in contradiction to a certain degree with the idea of, oh, I'm going to predict the future, right? Yeah. Sometimes you can see that there's a period where making hard predictions and expecting things to go exactly that way is not a good strategy. Right. Right. Which is ironic because that in and of itself is hopefully an accurate prediction. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh -huh. Yeah. But again, there's that meta level where you're not immune to the times that you're getting the data on. You can say this is a period of history that looks like this. And if you live through that, you don't get a, a free pass. You get a you know, you get maybe a better map. But, you know, the map does not make you invulnerable in the territory. It's not God mode. Right. <laughs> well said. So one thing I want to get to that's really interesting, uh, probably the most interesting single thing in the astrology of 2017 is 
something that's already being called the Great American Eclipse. Yeah, August, right? I love that title. I love like evocative, poetic titles. Oh, and, hell yeah. You know, uh, the media very rarely gives me those. Usually I have to make them up myself. <laughs> yeah, so that, the Great American Eclipse is a total solar eclipse in August. And let me get you the actual date. It's um, it's August 21st, I think. I wrote it on the calendar. Yeah, I, I just got done writing about February exhaustively. And so all of my, my data slots <laughs> are temporarily occupied. Mm-hmm. Do, do, do. Oh, there it is. Beautiful. Yeah. So it's, uh, yeah, it's August 21st. And so that is a total solar eclipse in Leo. Now, the reason that it's being called the Great American Eclipse is that it will be visible through almost the entire country. It'll start, if you track the path of it across the country, basically starts being visible in the northwestern United States, and then it sort of exits down there around the sort of south central east coast. And so we haven't had a total solar eclipse that was visible across pretty much the entire continental U.S. since, oh, who's it? 1918. 1918, right? So this doesn't happen very often. And what's even more interesting about that is, so this eclipse takes place at the very end of the sign of Leo. Right, it takes place at 28 degrees out of 30 of Leo. And back to Trump, Trump has that Mars that we were talking about and that ascendant in the last degrees of Leo. So this is right on his Mars and it's right on his ascendant. And so, you know, if uh, if a client came to me and we were sitting down, we're like, oh, let's talk about this year. And I saw that, you know, my eyebrows would 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 shoot through my hairline. Hmm. That's a that's a big one. <laughs> as <far laughs> astrology goes, you know, eclipses. It, it's interesting. It, it can be difficult to know exactly what eclipses do, but they do stuff. It's a highly charged moment. Yeah, you underline it a couple times, and you know, you you get out your highlighter, right? <laughs> and that ascendant. We're talking about that, the, the ascending degree of a chart, that's considered to be an extremely sensitive point in a person's natal chart. We could say that that's analogous to your doorstop, right? Like that's your front, that's the front door of your chart, right? Mm -hmm. And so when you get a significant configuration that comes to your doorstep like that, it's going to mean stuff. Mm hmm and so that's really interesting. And, you know, it's so funny that it's literally on the rising of the president of the United States and just happens to be visible across all of the United States. Man. Right. So, you know, that says something about this country. It's my country. Can you say if it's more positive or negative? So what I will say is because it's, it's in Leo and it's on the dragon's head or north node of the moon. In general, this eclipse cycle, because this one is in Leo, but we're going to have them in Leo and Aquarius until early 2018. Eclipses move in cycles where you get, you'll get them in this pair of signs and then this pair of signs and then the next pair of signs. It's roughly 18 months per cycle. 
It doesn't always work out to exactly that. This one's going to be more like 23. Mm -hmm. But so this one has the North Node or the Dragon's Head, which is the Eclipse Indicator in Leo. So half of them are going to be in Leo. Generally, if I were interpreting that, it would mean that it would it would speak to a rise in identification with how should we say a rise in nationalism, a rise in you know waving a banner and identifying with a banner. It's very like team sports. Damn. On a positive level, on an individual level, I think this cycle will give a lot of people the courage to stand up and say, this is who I am and this is what I believe. It's basically a push to get out there and represent whatever. Hmm. That And it's, it's very linked to the identification mechanism, which obviously works on a nationalist level and works on a, on a local level and an individual level. We can think of a lot of, you know, a lot of nationalism has led to terrible things, but that process of identification with something is not inherently pathological unless you're a really serious Buddhist, (laughs) (laughs) right? Like the being willing to step into, you know what, this is who I am and this is what I believe. And I'm willing to, you know, I'm willing to be seen doing that, right? That seems to be happening a lot, even with the women's march and the rea- the negative reaction to Trump. I mean, that's in the air. Wow, man, I love it. So that does just about cover it, I think. And just like last time, I leave this conversation really fired up about astrology. And I've definitely got a few key areas marked on my calendar that eclipse for sure. And we'll see what happens. And if uh, people do want more Austin Copic, remind them how to do that. You have some intensive classes. You have a yearly almanac. What else should people know? So you can find pretty much everything I'm doing at austincopic.com. I write almost, I write every week. I write weeklies. I write, I write about months. I wrote about this year. I've been doing a lot of writing, mm-hmm. trying to put it down. I'm teaching a series of classes on the fundamentals of astrology. The first one actually starts tomorrow uh, on the 4th of February so that people probably won't um, get this uh, in time to sign up for that. But that's part of an eight-month modular series where you can jump in at any point, and you can also get recordings if you want to catch up. But yeah, I'm I'm teaching classes, sort of beginner, intermediate, advanced topics uh, all year, and I I try to get that out um, through newsletters and announcements and whatnot. Oh, I, I do readings usually. I'm booked out till June right now. Damn, congrats. Thank you. Yeah, it's 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 a great problem to have. <laughs> I, I, I feel really bad telling somebody they have to wait four months. But I, it's just, I, I just can't do, I, I, I it's not something I, I like, I don't want to rush. You know, I don't, I, it's not a conveyor belt where I'm just like, let's do everyone quickly, you know, as quickly and efficiently as possible. Yeah. Let's get this assembly line style divination going. <laughs> um, but if people want to make an appointment with me for the summer, you know, cause that, you know, that four or five months booked out just keeps pushing further and further. So, you know, if you, if you want to schedule a talk, like it's way smarter to just get it ironed out now so you know that in september we're gonna have a chat or july yeah sweet that makes sense well very cool austin you are the goddamn man thanks again take care of yourself out there well thanks for having me on it's always great to talk to you
And boom goes the dynamite, people. The triumphant return of Austin Coppock. Gotta love it. I'm becoming more and more of a fan of astrology. I just enjoy looking at the world from that perspective once in a while. I think the way you explain the period we're in as it relates to the Zodiac Wheel is always so fascinating to me. And this show is a a rare case where the main thing I wanted to explore and talk about didn't come up until the Plus show, but that is the Great American Eclipse. It's coming in August, and every astrologer is apparently drawing a huge circle around it as the event this year. Astrologically, it's the most interesting and has some curious tie-ins to Trump's chart. But again, that is mainly in the second hour. So sign up for Plus if you're interested, or just keep an eye on August 21st onward. A big part of why I like astrology is that, to some degree, it's testable. Of course, it's not always black and white, but it's an art form, really, that goes back so long it should be respected if you think the ancients were insightful or that secret societies only study and maintain things that they think have merit. And with this eclipse, we don't know exactly what's going to happen, of course, as Austin said, but we can highlight it and underline it and expect it to be meaningful in some way, and we'll just have to see. But if you liked Austin's first appearance, I think this is a pretty good compliment to it, a pretty good continuation. It's also funny because I just mentioned last week how we got this fresh new form thing going on, and someone actually posted about the eclipse before this show came out and them being in Wyoming and that the whole town is getting booked up by tourists who want to get out there and see the eclipse from that vantage point, even this far in advance, several months, I find that interesting. It's actually kind of cool that in the modern world, people would put that much foresight into getting a good look at an astrological event, planning their short, rare vacations around it. I like it, regardless of the reasoning. I just like that the moon would have such an influence over the movement of people. Makes you wonder who's really in charge, huh? So I thought the first hour of this show was pretty awesome. Of course, I think the Eclipse talk in the second is the highlight. But you know to sign up. You've probably been listening long enough. But some other things we get into are aspects of my natal chart and how 2017 looks for me. Who cares, right? But Austin also dropped knowledge about the Chinese Zodiac and what it means for 2017 to be the year of the firecock. And really, is there any better president to be getting sworn in in the first month of the year of the firecock than Donald Trump? I mean, I think people who love him and those who hate him could probably come together and agree that he sort of embodies that perfectly. The apex of aggressive male energy, capitalism personified. I think it applies. But we also talked about the importance of 2018 as a game changer year, as opposed to 2017 just being 16 part two. Talked about the closing of both a 20 and 200 year cycle and the implications it may have on the elite and various power structures throughout the planet. A continuation of something we did touch on in that last talk. And we also got into the fact that we will be transitioning from an earth dominant era to an air dominant era and what that might mean. To me, it seemed to have characteristics that would be appropriate for a rebuilding period. Regardless of if we go through one or not, they just seemed like helpful attributes for a time period like that. So, good time all around. Interesting stuff. Austin is the man. 
I took a little long to get this show out, I realized, so the next one should be right around the corner. Gotta stay timely, gotta try to be professional, and this next show is another return guest that I think a lot of people liked last time. We're gonna leave it a mystery, because why not? And with that, I guess I'm out of here. I've done my part. Your move, natal chart navigators and the mysterious forces of the Zodiac Wheel. Your fucking...